Just a disclaimer before we begin, the views expressed on the kibitz are solely those of the guests and do not reflect the opinions of the host or its sponsors. Thanks. If for our ancestors, the divine was a king, Game of Thrones style, with a sense of fierce loyalty and majesty and, and, uh, and distance, nowadays the sense of the divine is something much closer to the self. That's Amichai Lalavi from Lab Shul, a God-optional congregation that he started in New York City. Rabbi Amichai has been hailed as an iconoclastic mystic by Time Out New York, a rock star by the New York Times, a Judaic Pied Piper by the Denver Westward, a maverick spiritual leader by the Times of Israel, and one of the most interesting thinkers in the Jewish world by Jewish Week. In 2016, The Forward named him one of the 32 most inspiring rabbis in America. He recently left the rabbinic arm of the conservative movement over its prohibition on performing interfaith weddings. I wanted to supplement our recent atheism episode with my conversation with Amichai, which, if you're wrestling at all with the question of how atheism squares with Judaism, I think you'll find very interesting. Hi, I'm Dan Crane. And I'm Dan's co-host, Jessica Chaffin. And you're listening to The Kibitz, the podcast about Jewish ideas and culture. Welcome to this special mini episode, a follow-up to our conversation about Jewish atheism. Here again is Rabbi Amichai. Uh, my name is Amichal Aulavi. I am a rabbi working in New York City. I'm the founder and leader of the Lab Shul community, which is a pop-up, everybody-friendly, God-optional, artist-driven congregation. Um, and that keeps me pretty busy. I imagine it does. Well, yeah, we'll, we're going to talk about what God-optional means. But I guess I, I want to start with a f- kind of the big question. You are a rabbi. Do you believe in God? Ah, well... Let's just say that what I think I believe in, and I'm not sure that believe is the exact verb that I'd use, but what I sense is at the core of things is a mystery and an entity and a reality that far transcends my human ability to make sense of it. Is that capital G-O-D God? I am willing to bet that our various views of that reality will get in the way of yes. So that was a a sneaky way to say (laughs) yes and no. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I think that's, that sounds about right. So, I mean, if, if Judaism is indeed a religion, which I think we can agree that it is, how can atheists still be Jews? And obviously you, you know, you run lab shul in New York where God is, as you say, optional. How do those things work together? So first of all, backtrack. I do not agree that Judaism is a religion, period. It is also a religion. It is, as Mordechai Kaplan taught us, a civilization. Judaism is comprised of many ways of living life and tapping into meaning, sacred, self, and community. Religion as we know it, the belief in God, the adherence to a religious structure— is one of and not the only way to be involved in the Jewish conversation. Certainly not in the 21st century. Yeah. It is an evolving sense of identity. Um, 
if we're coming from that perspective, which I am, then the question is, what is it that makes somebody affiliated with the Jewish uh, identity, the Jewish lifestyle, uh, want to show up and be part of a Jewish conversation? Whether it is a ritual, whether it is a learning opportunity, whether it is a life cycle celebration, or whether it is just a cultural event. Um, and in all those situations, I would say the key is the understanding of imagination and the understanding of metaphor. If for our ancestors, the divine was a king, Game of Thrones style, with a sense of fierce loyalty and majesty and, and, uh, and distance, nowadays the sense of the divine is something much closer to the self. A century post-Freud, we understand something about inner reality and about the, the landscape of consciousness in a way that challenges the thousands of years old liturgy of God. And even the very names and the very words, which are off-putting. G-O-D is a baggage term that for many people, myself included, instead of being a turn-on, to life's mystery is a turn off. Um, the reason God optional is one of the taglines of Labshul is because we are keenly aware that for many of us, the mere presence of a um, of a deity that is transcendent and not imminent that we talk to, ask favors from, praise or thank, is not exactly in sync with who we are intellectually and culturally. So God optional means we are open to the metaphor of being present to the mystery of presence without naming it in Hebrew or in English, God, and with letting people the opportunity of tapping into a greater mystery. And so, I mean, you talked about, you know, we live in this kind of post-Freud era and I mean, was there any kind of reinterpretation of some biblical text that sort of has allowed for this sort of, as you say, metaphorical approach to the idea of God? Or do you think it's just in some way a bit of a rationalization to keep non-believers in the fold and, and showing up? There's a great text by David Grossman, Israel's uh, one of Premier's authors, he wrote it in the 80s when his first son was born. And he writes about driving home from the hospital. His first son was just successfully born. And it's a sunrise over Jerusalem. And he stops the car and a voice inside of him says, say thank you. Your wife gave birth to a healthy baby boy. And he says, who do I say thank you to? I don't believe in God. And a voice inside of him says, your wife just gave birth to a healthy baby boy. Say thank you to the planet to the universe, to something. And he keeps on writing about his intimate, personal vocabulary that he needs to invent because he doesn't feel comfortable with the inherited vocabulary of Jewish prayer and theology as he received. I read that in my late teens as an Orthodox Jewish man coming out to his sexuality as gay, coming out to his questions of philosophy and theology, and it felt so powerful to say that my sense of standing in the presence of mystery and the presence 
that far transcends my being doesn't necessarily have the vocabulary in my ancient uh, theological code book. That it is up to me and up to us to reinvent and reclaim vocabularies that do speak to who we are today. And so that is where God optional comes in. And that's where the atheist and the agnostic and the seeker all dance in the same party, even though we don't exactly are invited by the same host. That's a really interesting way of looking at it and an interesting text. And I mean, so in terms of the of the sort of the major religions, do you think that that the the option of being an atheist is in a way unique to Judaism? Well, we do know that atheism is growing in numbers tremendously in the West. I think the crisis of modernity and how religion has been co-opted by so many fundamentalist voices sends people reeling away from a seeming version of a God who's supposed to be you know, magnificent and kind and always good, and then you've got Auschwitz and you've got kids in a cancer ward. So people are stepping away from it. And I think if we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and the suspension of disbelief to not consider the creator as Santa Claus, but as Mother Nature in its full, fierce, non-gendered complexity, then we're tapping into the sacred in ways that are compelling. And that means that atheists are absolutely welcome as an important part of our conversation because it helps us challenge our assumptions and broaden our horizons of what is, I'll use that word again, what is the sacred? What is the imminent? What is it that's going to make me be a better person, live up to my highest expectations, And that's my morality, my sense of consciousness, my sense of my conscience, my link to my ancestors and teachers and wisdom. What is going to get me to extend my hand and hold the hands of other people in a circle, whether they're of my people or all people, and live up to this image that we're all in divine image and everybody is worthy of dignity? These are ancient spiritual teachings that can get us to rise above our minimum basic human to a maximum sense of security as part of something bigger than self. Hmm. We, ha- we have these invites, and it is semantics that often get in our way, and a vision of God that is outdated, absolutely outdated. And we are not in kindergarten, and we're not in the dark ages. We need to transcend our sense of divinity as we are re-expanding our vision of humanity. They go hand in hand. I haven't had the opportunity to attend any services or, or anything at Lab Shul. So how does, uh, you know, how does your vision of that, of the divine and the, that sort of what you're speaking of weave its way into, you know, the sort of very, um, uh, the, the 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 rituals of of Judaism and the sort of the 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 prayers and all that kind of thing. I mean, the the you know what I know of of Jewish services tends to be very ritualized and very built upon specific things that relate to that generally point back to God and and to reading the Torah and all of that. So so how do you craft your services or, or, or around that? Okay. So, first of all, by being transparent and letting people know we are God optional. We're not judging us 
and whoever is here by what you believe or don't believe in. You're here to have a sense of community, the music, the meditation, the liturgy, the poetry, the storytelling, all invite conversation, introspection. So when we invite people into our worship events, we are transparent and we let people know we are everybody friendly, we are God optional, however you were born, whatever you believe, this is an invitation for conversation and for an emotional experience, whether you do or don't believe in a creator that is or is not involved in your life. These are metaphors for living and for being aware. So by being transparent and opening it up in the way we, we invite and frame it, people immediately feel relaxed. I'm not expected to be in a charade of a faith or belief in something that I'm not sure I believe in. The questions are welcome and holy. The second thing is that we translate the liturgy in ways that speak to today. We do not use the word G-O-D, God, in our liturgy. We use mystery. We use source. We use um, a spirit. We use various ways in which we're clearly dealing with an abstract metaphor of being, of existence, of transcendence, of imminence, of love. And by using various words and various poetic aphorisms, if you'd like, I think we make it clear that we are opening it up for your own sense of being inside this public conversation. Uh, what's important to know, and I think most people don't know this, certainly in the Jewish world, is that the very meaning of what the divine names are in Jewish liturgy and history have evolved and keep on evolving. There are many names for the divine. It hasn't always been a masculine godhead who is the epitome of patriarchy. There are feminine and gender fluid names of the divine that have been used by different traditions over the centuries. There are ways of being playful and reverent while being irreverent with this understanding that words are very impoverished when it comes to being in the face of reality. So even unpacking that immediately makes us understand that we are part of a long evolution and a revolution of what it means to be part of a spiritual vocabulary that keeps changing. And so, and just out of curiosity, how do you, do you, you say you modify the language in the, in, you know, in, in the liturgy, do you do that in the Hebrew as well? Or do you just sort of acknowledge that this is how you're sort of translating the, the Hebrew? So uh, we do a few different things. We primarily use our liturgy when we do our, our big worship events by using uh, projections, not books. So on a projection, or when we have this printed out, you will have the original Hebrew with some modifications that I'll talk about in a second, transliteration, and a radically new God-optional artistic translation of liturgy that we keep on working with. Um, one of the Hebrew changes we have taken on so far, and there will be more, is that we replaced the adjective melech, uh, king, with the word ruach, spirit. King in Hebrew is gendered, it is hierarchy, it is transcended, it is what our ancestors thought of as an appropriate way to describe the divine. For us today, it's off-putting. Ruach is non-gendered, it is spirit, it is abstract. And so we're gradually teaching our community to use that word instead in the blessings. And there's lots of hilarious stories about, you know, generational divides over it. 
but I think we're gradually making a dent in at least that liturgical moment. We are thinking about doing more with the Hebrew names of the divine in the Hebrew section of our liturgy. But that's going to take a few more years. These are hallowed um, hallowed words that have been around for hundreds and thousands of years, and the change needs to be gradual and respectful, I believe. Um, I had a big aha moment with this about a decade ago, and I was in a very strange synagogue that tried out a very strange method of bringing actors into the worship who were dressed as clowns, and they would interrupt the worship to sort of make people out of the comfort zone, I guess. There was a young woman sitting in front of me who kept saying in response to these clowns, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And she <laughs> kept saying it, she drove me nuts. The whole thing was so weird. But then I had an understanding to which I'm very grateful. Every time this kid said, oh my God, subconsciously she meant it. What she said was, I'm faced with something completely out of my comfort zone and something way beyond what I know. And so the words she has in her hard drive are, oh my God, without knowing it, but in some way knowing it, she was having a religious experience. And I think that's what the rabbi of that synagogue intended, even though it wasn't successfully unpacked. Um, but that made me understand that when we say things like God, oh my God, something in our soul is resonating with the mysterious and beyond ourselves. And by reclaiming the terminology and reinventing words that we are comfortable with, we're giving ourselves the experience of wonder and the experience of being some part of something bigger. And those semantic shifts in this day and time, Jews and beyond, I believe are critical. Well, yeah, that has been an interesting story. It made me also think about how often that phrase is used in in the sexual acts as well <laughs> when you're saying totally. it's a, yeah totally there yeah. was there was this this is years ago this research that said that in porn the top statement is yes in whatever languages and the second in different languages is oh my god <laughs> So, the whole other conversation. Yeah, that is a whole other conversation. Well, um, thank you so much for uh, talking atheism with me. Thank you. All right. That is it for this mini episode of The Kibitz. This episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane. Special thanks to my host, Jessica Chaffin, as well as Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, David Jargowski, Francine Hermelin, and Reboot. Our music is courtesy of Ray and Ramora, and our main theme is courtesy of Nunam Plut. And as my great-grandmother used to say, That's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Thanks for listening to The Kibitz. If you enjoy this episode and want to keep hearing more from The Kibitz, please consider making a charitable, tax-deductible donation to Reboot, the Jewish nonprofit organization behind The Kibitz at rally.org reboot.